Hey, if you're a guest with us, we're glad that you're here this morning. I want to handle a few housekeeping items before we jump into the sermon uh, today. Uh, we've had a lot of excitement around here at New Hope. We've got this um, thing we've called the REACH Initiative. It's a three-year strategic plan that focuses on a bunch of different elements. Um, one of the elements is our facilities, our campus, and expanding that campus to make room for more people and uh, to be able to do more as a church family. And many of us in, at New Hope, you've been given faithfully to that. And we're very grateful for that. We're excited that God put a vision on our hearts. The vision was clear, and, and we're moving forward with it. Uh, but moving forward with that element is going to take place uh, this week. And I'll tell you more about that here in just a moment. Uh, but a reminder that that's not the only part of the REACH initiative. Uh, many people, you'll hear this, and you might even read it on our website or grab a booklet out there on the table, and you might think, hey, this is all about building a building. It's really not, and I, I hope that if you were here last week, you saw that. It's about more than simply um, expanding the campus. We want to develop godly leaders, and we want to partner with people in our community to make a difference. And so if you're familiar with New Hope's history, you know we have a house on the other side of our property that's known as the Willie House. It's that way. And uh, right now it houses missionaries, and it's, it's wonderful. But in the fall, that uh, house will be renovated, and we're partnering with a ministry called So Big Ministries. And the Willie House will become the Mountain House. And in that home, we will be um, taking care of, it'll be a maternity home for women in need. Um, and so we'll have women living there, having their needs met, and we'll come alongside that ministry and disciple these women in this home. And so the REACH initiative is a, about a multitude of things, and some of these things we're celebrating and we're excited about right now. Now, next week, starting this during the week, leading to next Sunday, there'll be some changes around here. And it's going to kind of require some of us to be patient, which I'm not good at. I don't know if you're good at it. We're going to talk about that here in a little bit. Uh, it's not my number one quality, but we're kind of going to have to be patient with one another around here. So I'm going to put a map up on the screen. It's going to tell you, starting this week, parts of the building that will be unavailable. And so everything highlighted in yellow, uh, we can't use for a little while as they're working on it, expanding it. And so when you arrive next week, there'll be people in the parking lot guiding you. Uh, there'll be people directing you to enter. Everybody's going to enter through this entrance right here, the west entrance of the building. So if you were to turn around and look at the back wall where you came in, if you came in that way, that's where everybody enters in starting next Sunday morning. Uh, the front drive here where a lot of people are used to dropping people off or, or coming in, that will be closed. And so we're going to have um, some parking and traffic flow, uh, people directing that at the other uh, drive coming into the campus. And so it's going to require a little bit of patience, but it's a lot of excitement because when this is done, we're going to be able to do a lot more ministry-wise here on our campus. And so we wanted to make you aware of that. So you can check our website, which some of this information will be up there, and you can look. You can call the church office. You can catch one of us today. We'd love to kind of explain any uh, details that you need, answer any questions that you might have as we launch into this next week where a lot of the excitement becomes reality. Um, and so we hope you're as excited as we are. This morning, though, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and we'll jump into God's Word. We'll be in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here without fear of being persecuted, without fear of any threat. We can come, and we are Christians, we, uh, and may, some of us might not be, but we're here with a freedom to listen, to hear from your Word. And so my prayer is simple this morning. God, teach us something about Jesus. Let us leave here learning something that we can put into practice as we seek to follow him and learn from him in our lives. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, like I said, patience is not my number one quality. And if you know me, if you've been around me for long, you would agree with that. Um, 
when I first met my wife and we began dating, and I did, was like, this is it. She is awesome. I want to marry this girl. I had an issue on my hands. I had to ask permission, and I was... Um, in fact, you know, it's not old school. It's the only school. If you're going to marry a girl, you ask her dad for permission, all right? Let's just get that out of the way. So I had to ask Sarah's dad, who happens to be David, if you're a guest around here, David, and I was more than a little bit intimidated, um, so much so I could have wet myself, okay? <laughs> and here's how it went down. David happened to be flying to Tampa, Florida, uh, which is right where we were. We were over in Orlando, and he was flying to Tampa to preach a wedding one weekend. Right around the time that I was like, okay, this is time. I want to do this, and he happens to be flying in. Sarah happened to have a volleyball tournament in Tampa that same weekend. They just kind of happened together, which means I think our marriage is divine. I'm kidding. Uh, but he comes to Tampa, and we're going to Tampa, and we're going to watch this tournament. And So I'm sitting in the bleachers, Sarah had issued this challenge, like, you're not going to catch me off guard, I'm going to know it's coming, and I said, challenge accepted. And so we get to this tournament, and David and I are sitting in the stands at a Bible college level competition volleyball tournament. I love my wife, that was not an exciting sport to watch at the time. <laughs> so we're sitting in the bleachers, and David's sitting next to me, and I begin to blah, 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 blah. Uh, daughter, uh, wife, love, family, can I come, please? Like, I'm just stuttering like crazy, not having any clear, coherent thought, and he finally cuts me off, and, and uh, he saved me. He could have milked it. <laughs> he could have had a lot of fun, and he didn't, and he said, hey, we, want, we would love to have you in the family, Rob, and I thought, oh, good. Whew, got permission. Four hours later, I proposed. I just couldn't wait. I was so impatient. I didn't even have the ring. It, I was having a ring designed. I had to somehow trick her, go get the ring. I got the ring, and I was like, what do I do with this thing? What do I do with this thing? Marry me, right? And so I couldn't hold on to it because I was so impatient. It was awesome. It didn't go the way I wanted it to, but I wasn't patient enough to wait. I said, Sarah, let's go to the beach. She said, I don't want to go to the beach. I said, no, let's go to the beach. I, we're going to the beach tonight. And she said, no, no, I don't want to go to the beach. I got a headache. I said, come on, let's go to the beach. I don't want to go to the beach. I said, you got to go to the beach. We have to do this. Like, come on. <laughs> And so we went to a park, and it worked out okay. Uh, we didn't go to the beach. And a lot of decisions have kind of followed that pattern. But um, <laughs> it's Father's Day. I get a free slide on that one. So I'm very impatient. And as I'm thinking through what I wanted to preach this morning, this passage, it's, it's teaching us about patience, this sermon series is. And do some reading. I came across this fascinating study that took place about 30 years ago. It was called the Stanford Marshmallow Test. I don't know if you've heard about this or not, but 30 years ago, there was a group of psychologists that gathered a group of five-year-old kids, and they put these five-year-olds in rooms, one by one, separate. And then a psychologist would come into this room with just the child in this room and nothing but a marshmallow. And they would come, and they'd put the marshmallow on the table in front of the kids, and they would say, you can eat this marshmallow right now. However... If you will wait an unspecified amount of time while I leave, when I come back into this room at an unspecified time, I'll give you two more marshmallows and you'll have three instead of one. The choice is yours. And then they left. They left these five-year-olds in this room and they left the camera running and they filmed the kids' responses. When the study was over, they grouped the kids into two groups. You had the waiters and the grabbers. The grabbers, they were, it was real simple. The psychologist left the room, they grabbed the marshmallow, they ate it immediately. What, right? Okay, bird in the hand's worth two in the bush. You can't trust adults, just eat it, right? And so the, the adult left, boom, it's over. I got my marshmallow. 
The waiters, however, what was interesting about watching them, the psychologist said, was not just that they waited, but how they waited, the coping mechanisms that they developed. They said that one kid put the marshmallow in the middle of the table and just stared at it. (laughs) Another kid grabbed it and he would toss it like a ball. He would just hold it and toss it like a ball, trying to get his mind off of eating it. One kid put it in the middle of the table and he walked around it and just looked at it like this, just looked at it nonstop until the guy came back in the room. One kid actually put it on the table and licked the wood near it, hoping that the flavor somehow transferred into the wood of the table. Right? All kinds of things. The best part of this study, though, is that they tracked these kids for 20 years after they did this. 20 years after this experiment. And their conclusion was that they have never seen a single characteristic that more powerfully determined the success or failure of a person than that of patience. Your ability to wait. They said that the waiters, the ones who were able to wait when they got older, had far more self-control, they were more emotionally adjusted, they had far better relationships, and get this, they averaged a score of 210 points higher on the SAT. See, their ability to wait created success in their life. And I think the same thing that's true physically is true spiritually. Our ability to wait, to see something coming in the future, And right now in the present, be able to withstand certain things as we wait and long for something in the future brings success right here, right now in our lives. And so this is what the Sermon on the Mount communicates to us. We have this hope for a place called heaven. And we hope in heaven, but we have to live today. Heaven's coming, but today is here. And so how do we cope with today? And so we launched this sermon series Last week, and we began to wonder, hey, is there this way that I can live my life? This question the sermon series is going to answer is this. Is there a way that I can live my life, a way that I can pursue the everyday stuff of my life, that despite all the storms that crash into my life, I can stand strong? And last week, as we looked at Matthew 7, the end of the sermon, we determined that that is dependent upon the foundation you build your life on. You see, you have one of two builders. You have the builder whose house is going to stand and the builder whose house is going to fall, and it's all dependent on the foundation. Are you building your life on the foundation that the text tells us is the Word of God? It's God's Word, His instruction. He tells you how to live, and if you build your life on the way that He tells you to build your life, through Jesus, your house stands when the storms crash. Not if they crash, but when they crash. And so as we look at how to live this life, and can I have a life... We'll not only be waiting for heaven. For too many Christians, we consider following Jesus an afterlife insurance policy. I'll live and do whatever I got to do. I'm a Christian. I'm in. I'm waiting for heaven. And when I get to heaven, everything will be good. But right here and right now, that's not what my faith is all about. And so we begin to build our lives on our own wisdom and our own understanding of life. And before you know it, a storm hits that your wisdom and your understanding was not strong enough for. And all of a sudden, we have people walking away from Jesus, walking away from their faith, not raising their kids in a godly manner, losing marriages, relationships getting racked and destroyed. Why? All because we tried to build our life on our own wisdom, not on the wisdom and the foundation of God's word. Now, as we come back to the beginning of this sermon, and we're going to look at a section of Scripture called the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And turn your Bible on, open it up, get ready. And we're going to walk through this passage here in a minute. But a couple things I want you to know. First, as we launch into the beginning of this sermon, understand Jesus' point of view as he preaches the most famous sermon ever preached. Let me be transparent with you. There are times when you get up to preach. And the culture that we live in with podcasts and websites and all kinds of things, and you begin to hone the craft of preaching, and there are times when Satan gets the best of you, and you begin to preach so that you gain the appreciation of the audience. Just 
the human element. Anyone who tells you that they've never done that is now a liar, and it still happens to them, because that's what happens. It's truth. There are days you get up, and you begin to preach, and you begin to teach, and you're doing it so that people will like you, not just their approval, but you want them to actually really like you and enjoy you, and before you know it, you're repenting of performing. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't get up to preach this sermon. He didn't preach this sermon to this crowd so that they would like him more. Right? He didn't go home after the Sermon on the Mount and gather the disciples up and say, guys, how'd that go? Critique it for me. Did I need more humor? Like, none of that. that what, that's not why he preached. Jesus preached for a sole purpose, transforming those who would hear this sermon, both in the audience that day and thousands of years later as we get to read this sermon and what he said, how he instructed people, that it might transform and change our lives, not so that we would admire him. Remember last week we said the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is not to be admired. Jesus is not just to be admired, he's to be obeyed. And there's a difference. So many Christians admire the teachings of Jesus. And rarely are we called to obey them. Because obedience requires accountability, and accountability is uncomfortable, and we don't want to be uncomfortable in church. And so Jesus teaches this with the understanding that this is to transform your life, not to make you admire and like him more. Second thing I want you to know before we jump in is the audience that day is a reflection of the audience today. And so if you look in Matthew chapter 4, if you're in chapter 5, just kind of go back a little bit or look up uh, a little bit on the page, and you get to verse 23, and he says this, And he, Jesus, went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel or the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread through all of Syria, and they brought him all of the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So you have this crowd of people that come before Jesus, and Jesus, proclaiming the truth of the kingdom of God, he then heals all of these sick people, and when you experience life transformation with Jesus, you naturally tell other people about it. People talk about the things that they care about. And when Jesus changes your life, you care a big deal about that. His name begins to spread in fame, and people come from all over the known world to get a glimpse of this guy Jesus that they've heard about. And those that are sick are being healed. Remember, it says that he healed all of them. He didn't always do that, but this time he healed all of them. It's a lot of work. And now Jesus is walking, and in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, and seeing the crowds. So in chapter 5, verse 1, seeing the crowds, Jesus, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. This is important. So he sees the crowd. He turns around. Whoa, a lot of people. Okay, this is about more than healing sick people. This is about more than doing miracles. Jesus was always about more than just an event. Jesus was about taking the opportunity to teach and to introduce you to living a kingdom life. As he's about to start this sermon, you've got to understand the audience is, the crowd is full of sick people, people that were rejected, people that were looked down upon. Many scholars actually use as strong a language to say these were the losers in that culture, people that no one else cared about, people that were rejected. Fill in the blank in our culture today. These are the poor people. These are the people that have uh, disorders. These are the people that are looked down upon. These are the people that get rejected. However you would describe it, these are people that the kingdom shouldn't probably be open to if you think from a worldly standpoint, but Jesus has a message for them about this kingdom and about living this life. The other people in the audience are the disciples, those that are following him, those that have been listening to his teaching, and Jesus uses this opportunity. This sermon becomes a training for them. 
So it's teaching and it's training them. It trains them. How do we know that? Because in a few chapters later, he's going to send them out with the ability to heal and do the same. And he tells them, you don't just heal. You proclaim the news of the kingdom too. Just like I'm modeling for you right now. Jesus healed a bunch of people and he turns around and teaches them about the kingdom and he sends them out to do the same. And then he sends us out to do the same at the end of Matthew's gospel, chapter 28. He says, therefore, because I have all authority and I'm giving you the ability to do this through the working of my Holy Spirit in your life, you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Don't just teach them. Teach them to obey. So as you work for Jesus, as you live on mission for the Lord because of what he's done in your life, you don't just do great things. You teach people about Jesus and about how to live for Jesus. And so now, verse 2, it says, He opened his mouth and he taught them. So he turns around, here comes this lesson. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, The poor in spirit are blessed as a result of the kingdom of God being available to them in their spiritual poverty. Someone who's poor in spirit is somebody who's at the end of their religious rope. They're tired of following religious laws. They realize, I can't do this myself. I'm bankrupt spiritually making a religious checklist of things that I have to do to be acceptable in this religious culture, I can't do it anymore. I'm out. And those people were in the crowd that day, people who had really tried hard to live a religious, upright life. And they had made Christianity a bunch of rules to be listened to. And following God was just, I have to do this and this and this and this. And when they couldn't do it, they were just poor in spirit. And Jesus says, hey, the kingdom is open for you as well. Verse 4 Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who mourn are the emotionally bankrupt. Life, the storms have hit numerous times. The foundation wasn't strong enough, and I'm bankrupt. I've got nothing else emotionally to give. I'm at this place of emotional bankruptcy, and I have nothing left to give, nowhere else to go. And Jesus says, you'll be comforted. Enter the kingdom, and you'll find comfort. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is not not a doormat. Meekness is, the the word literally means surrender. Meekness is somebody who's come to the end of their rope and they say, I give in, I quit. I'm done trying, I quit. I'm I'm surrendering myself. He said, blessed are those who are meek. Verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I don't know if you remember the last time that you were truly hungry. Last time you were thirsty, like so thirsty that it created a desperation in you. I've not experienced that if I'm being honest. I've never felt like I was literally dying of hunger. It, it, I don't know if many of us have. My son, Luke, my youngest son, came uh, the other day. We were having, we, dinner was on the table, and we said, Luke, it's time for dinner. And he comes out of the room. He says, I'm playing with my trains. I'm not hungry. Well, then he kind of turns the corner. I don't know if he caught a smell of the good food or what, but he looked at me. He says, you know, Daddy, actually, I'm dying of hunger, so I better eat my dinner. And so then I'm like, buddy, you're not dying of hunger. We don't starve our kids. Don't email me. So he then goes in and sits at the table and he eats. But he has no clue what it means to truly starve and and thirst. And this text is telling us you've got to the place where you want to live a righteous life so bad it creates a desperation inside of you. I'm desperate to live a righteous life. I'm desperate for that. He says, blessed are the merciful, those who extend mercy consistently, even to the point, what he's communicating here, even to the point that you're taken advantage of sometimes because you're so kind and merciful, you will also receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, those whose hearts have remained pure. They're in the audience that day. You've done a good job of keeping your heart pure. You shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, those who are not creating conflict and violence and war, but those who are seeking peace. I want to create peace as best I can. 
then you will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is fascinating to me. We could camp out here for a long time and talk about what it means to be persecuted. I don't know that I've encountered a lot of Christians in our country that have faced the level of persecution that some of our brothers and sisters face in the world today. Those that can be beheaded without denouncing Jesus by ISIS. Blow me away. They're my heroes. Those, I don't know if you know this, but in the underground church in China, when they're baptized into Christ, they come up out of the waters of baptism and they're handed a booklet and they're told life's about to get really, really hard. And this is a guide to face persecution. And this helps them deal with the difficulty of following Jesus in a world that rejects him so openly. And Jesus says, when you stand firm, you live this kingdom life and the storm of persecution just beats on your house. If the foundation's set, you're going to be okay. He said, but in order for that to happen, you've got to be a part of the kingdom. And what Jesus is saying here is this is not a checklist. Why do we read it like a checklist? We look at the Beatitudes like somehow I have to become all of these things in order to be acceptable in the eyes of God. And I don't know about you, but I've studied and studied and studied and I've convinced myself, don't read it like a checklist. This is different than a checklist. I don't have to accomplish these things to gain the favor of God. And yet I find myself going back to them like a checklist, trying to obey these things and make these a quality of my life. Down in chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus says this. I think this is why we read it this way. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that, exceeds that, of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom. So Jesus says, when it comes to righteousness, living a life, literally, this is what righteousness means. I live a life that is viewed as right in the eyes of God. When God looks at my life and how I live my life, he sees it as proper and right. That's righteousness. And he says, unless your righteousness, your ability to live, exceeds the scribes and Pharisees. If you know your Bible, you know that the scribes and the Pharisees are the ones that made religious checklists and then followed them to a T. These are the guys that killed it. These are the guys that uh, they were answering all the questions, doing all the right things, living up to all the right standards. They set the standard. And now Jesus is looking at the people who were not living up to those standards. Jesus is looking at an audience and a crowd that were viewed as religious rejects, and he's saying, unless your righteousness surpasses theirs, surpasses their righteousness, you can't be a part of the kingdom. And if you don't become a part of the kingdom, then all these promises I just read off to you, they cannot be true of your life. So what do we do? Now we're lost. Like, uh-oh, my righteousness has to surpass that of these incredibly righteous people in order to get all these blessings that he just told me about, in order for me to live a blessed life, in order for me to have a life that no matter what storms hit my life, no matter what difficulty I walk through, I can stand firm. In order to have that life, I have to have righteousness that surpasses these religiously righteous people. What do I do? It's coming to an understanding that Jesus is not telling us to approach righteousness the same way the Pharisees and the scribes do. Let me illustrate it for you this way. Let's suppose you're a famous professional athlete. I'm going to use one that comes up in my house all the time. His name's Steph Curry, okay? My son is a huge Steph Curry fan. And so let's just say Steph Curry. If you don't know about him, he's a, he's a basketball player. He plays for the Golden State Warriors. Last year, um, he won the MVP of the league, the most valuable player in the entire NBA. He won that award. He broke the three-point record last year. hit more three-pointers than any player in history. He then won an NBA championship last year and led his team to a championship last year. 
This year, he comes back. He wins the MVP award a second year in a row. He breaks his own three-point record by setting the standard so high, I don't think anyone's ever going to break it. And now tonight, he plays in game seven of the, the NBA finals to win and beat LeBron James, send him back to Cleveland. At least that's what my household's hoping for my son's sake. It'll be a long night if he doesn't. That's Steph Curry. Now, suppose that after the game, after winning the championship tonight, he retires. I don't even think he's 30 years old yet. Let's say he retires from basketball. Based on his record alone over the last two years, do you understand that the rest of his life would be set? So many different doors of opportunity would be open to him. Doors in business and relationship and social circles. Simply because he would present a record, a perfect record, athletically. Use another analogy. Let's say you went off to war and you fought in war and battles and when you got back you had the, the, the Medal of Honor, you had all these Purple Hearts, you had just accomplished so much. You were this impeccable veteran. And at a younger age, you got out of the military after accomplishing all of that. Do you understand how many doors would still be opened to you simply because of your record, the record that you would present? Maybe that one doesn't connect with you. Maybe for you, it's intellectual. Let's say you go undergrad and you just nail it. You kill it. And you get into a, a graduate school, top of your class. You get the degree. You get the PhD. You've got all of this prestige, this impeccable record to present to people. The opportunities that would be open to you, the doors that would open up for you, both uh, in, in the business world, in the social world, relationally, all kinds of things would be afforded to you because you would present this incredible record. And so when I study this passage and I look at chapter 5, verse 20, the question I ask is this, what kind of a record do I have to present for the door of the kingdom to be open to me, for me to live this kingdom life right here and right now, to have all these blessings that Jesus just described, describe my life, what kind of a record do I have to present to have that door opened? And Look, here's the thing. Many of you are like, dude, that's easy. Of course, we all know that. It has to be a perfect record. I get it. It has to be an impeccable, perfect record. A record that you cannot produce by yourself. A record that no matter hard work or achievement is going to get you. You don't get to have that kind of a record. It's impossible for you to come to God and say, here's my record. Will you please open the door of the kingdom? And many of us are sitting here today and we're saying, yeah, I know that then why do we continue to read the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes like a spiritual checklist trying to achieve the record that will somehow impress God enough to open the door of the kingdom? Why do we live out Christianity like it's some religious obligation to keep God happy with us? Why do we place relational expectations on our friends, family members, coworkers that say, if you're going to really live a Christian life, it has to look like this. And when they don't live up to it, we judge them and condemn them. Because we've created a checklist that they haven't marked everything off on. Why do so many parents raise their children to only look this way when it comes to your relationship with God? And if it doesn't look the way I want it to look, then somehow you have failed to live up to the expectations of God. Because what Jesus is saying when he says this, he is not saying that it has to surpass the religious and righteous activity of the Pharisees and the scribes. He is saying if you don't begin to approach righteousness differently, then the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never, this kingdom thing's never going to work out for you. He is saying, stop viewing it as religious activity, as a checklist that you have to accomplish to please God. It can't. You will not do enough to keep God pleased, to keep God happy with you. Your record will never be perfect enough. Here's what Jesus is saying with the Beatitudes. Jesus says, enter the kingdom, no matter what condition your life is in. No matter where you're at, what you've been through, what bad decisions you've made, how many mistakes and people that you've hurt, no matter where you are in your life, enter the kingdom 
and this is how your life will change. And then he begins to describe it in even more detail with the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Enter the kingdom first. Let God begin to transform and change your life. And here's what that's going to look like. Here's what transformed lives look like. Here's what the kingdom life looks like. Here's what the life looks like that when the storms of life beat up against it, it doesn't fall. He says, this is how you do it. He does not say, change your life and then you'll be able to enter this way. Do these things and then God will be happy enough with you for you to be in the kingdom. My question for us is, do we really believe that? My experience in the church, I'm being really honest, my experience in my own life has been, I've gone through seasons where you would look at my life and say, there's no way Rob believes that. Rob's trying to prove himself. Rob's trying to prove himself to God with the way he's acting. Rob's trying to gain some sort of a perfect record to please the Lord so that he'll get blessings in his life. My question for us is, do we really view the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount as an invitation to live a kingdom life that will then transform and change us, or do we view it like a religious checklist? Here's my uh, two lessons I want to pull back, scan back and say two things I want you to take with you. So take a picture of the screen behind me, uh, write it down, do whatever you got to do. Okay? Here's two lessons. Jesus cannot bless who you pretend to be. You can pretend to be this religious, righteous, upright person. You can pretend to have everything figured out. He cannot bless your life when you're pretending to be something you're not. And we've just learned you're not righteous enough. On your best day, your good works are filth to him. Because that's how high the standard is. You can't do it. You re- it requires somebody else's record. The perfect record of Jesus, offered to God on your behalf, opens the door to the kingdom and transformation in your life. And we continually try to prove ourselves. Jesus can't bless who you're pretending to be. He can only bless who you actually are. And who you actually are is someone who must come before him and say, I've got nothing really to offer here. The best way I illustrate this truth here is, is Genesis chapters 38 to 50, the life of Joseph. We did a sermon series on his life uh, about, about two years ago. Let me summarize it for you. Joseph's a, an arrogant young kid when we meet him in chapter 38. He begins to tell his brothers about these dreams that he had. And in these dreams, they bowed down to him later on in life. And then he was smart enough to tell them about the dreams, which is always intelligent. Really good move. Let me tell you that God told me that at the end of our life, I'm way better than you. Cool? All right, let's get back to work. It doesn't work. So his brothers, through a series of events, they end up grabbing him. They beat him up. They throw him in a hole. Then they take his coat that his dad had given him. They kill an animal. They smear the blood all over it. And they bring it back to the the dad. And they say, hey, your son is dead. In the meantime, they sell him into slavery, and he's sold into slavery. All the while, he's had this incredible promise. And the whole time, he's got to be having this marshmallow, thinking, what am I waiting for? What am I waiting for? Why? Why, why, why? And after 13 years, he's sold into slavery. He works for a guy named Potiphar. He lives this exemplary life. He allows God to continue to shape him and mold him into who he needed him to be in order to eventually do what he needed him to do. And this is, the, this is the purpose here. When you get real with God and you stop faking it and you stop living this somehow cultural Christian life and you just say, I'm nothing, I've got nothing to offer, Lord, please begin to transform me, he will begin to shape and mold you now before heaven. It's not an afterlife insurance policy. He will begin to shape and change your life right here and right now. That's what he did with Joseph. So Joseph rises to the ranks in Potiphar's house. Then Potiphar's wife, who's you know um, a woman of the night, if you will, makes a move on him. It tries to seduce him. He resists. She lies, says that he did it anyway. He gets thrown in prison. Two more years in prison with the marshmallow, waiting. Lord, you promise. What, what's going on here? Why, why, why? After two years, a cupbearer and a baker, somehow through a series of events, they get him an audience before Pharaoh. 
And finally, this dream comes to fruition. And all those years of God shaping and molding him, bring him prepared for this moment. He leads Pharaoh and his people through a famine. And then at the, in, in, in the end of his chapters 48, 49, and 50, guess who comes walking down the road? It's the brothers. And here's what I love about the story of Joseph. The brothers come before Joseph, and Joseph has the upper hand now. Joseph has something to offer, and they can't lie anymore. And they can't fake it anymore. And they can't hit an angle, and they can't justify their behavior. They can't do anything. The only thing they can do in that moment is be vulnerable. And that's what they do. They say, I got nothing to offer. I got nothing to offer here. And then Joseph says, hey, that's okay. Because through me, I'm going to open the door to Egypt and help you escape the famine. And Joseph points to a much better figure in Scripture, Jesus. Who when we come before him and we say, I got nothing left to offer, he says, it's okay, poor in spirit, I got you back. That's the legacy I want to leave my kids. I want to stop faking it. I want to stop reading the Sermon on the Mountain saying, hey, if someone punches me in the face, uh, when can I punch him back? Or how long can I look before it becomes lust? And this, and that. I just don't want to live that life anymore. I want to live the life that says, Lord, I got nothing left to offer. Take me and use me. I want my kids to look back and say, my dad didn't have what it took, but he sure did rely on the one who did. That's the legacy I want to leave my children. And this is what happens in Joseph's story. And so this brings me to the second truth transformation, kingdom life. Living that life means that you're changed by Jesus from the inside out, not the outside in. We've got to stop trying to earn our way. Jesus transformed you from the inside and that changes everything coming out. And it sounds cliche and we've, we've talked about it ad nauseum and that's what church is all about. When we come back together, it's just to remind each other, look, stop trying to prove yourself out there. You can't do it. Nothing you do will be good enough. We've got to come before the Lord and say, Lord, I've got nothing. And he'll respond, oh, poor in spirit, don't worry about it. The door's been opened. Come on in. I've got your back. This flies in the face of the excuse, I'll come to church or I'll get involved or I'll be discipled once I get fill in the blank. This figured out. Once I fix this, once I do this. Jesus says, no, don't fix that. I want you right where you're at. Broken, frail, vulnerable, and poor. Come into the kingdom and I'll change everything. Let me uh, close out with this. True story. Years and years ago, there was a guy uh, he had more money than he knew what to do with, and uh, he used that money to purchase artwork, Van Gogh, Monet, all these people, all their artwork around his entire mansion, everywhere in this house, and I read about this this week. I think it's fascinating. Everywhere in this estate is this really expensive artwork, and then he got his son into doing the same thing, and so his son gets into spending tons and tons of money. We're talking millions of dollars of art, and then World War II comes, and his son gets drafted and has to go to war. And the father's devastated by this, and he sits in pins and needles just kind of waiting for his son to return, and then he gets the telegram that no parent wants and says, hey, your son was killed in action. And the only thing the telegram told him is that he had saved some lives. That's it. Later on that year, Christmas rolls around, and the guy can barely get out of bed because he's just so depressed and so sad, and then the doorbell rings. He answers the door, and there's a young guy in full military attire, and he looks at him and says, hey, sir, I knew your son. I knew your son. And, and he told me that you loved artwork, so I got a gift for you. And he invited him in, and they sat, and they swapped stories. And he told him how his son had saved him in, in battle, and he'd got him this work of art. And he said, I'm an artist, so I painted you this picture. And the dad opens it up, and it's not a piece of art. It's not very pretty, but it's a portrait of his son. And so he removes two million-dollar pieces of art off the wall of this estate, and he hangs this picture of his son. And every day it was a reminder for him. Years later, the man passes away and his entire estate goes up for auction. True story. 
And while this estate's up for auction, all over the world people sent representatives because of this guy's art collection. So you had museums and art collectors and millionaires. Everybody comes to this auction. And they're all sitting there. And the auctioneer comes out and he puts the first piece of art on the easel and it's the portrait of the son. He says, let the, let, we're going to start the bidding with this piece. And so silence, no one's bidding on it. After a little while, people begin to grumble and they begin to get upset and they begin to complain. Like, what do we, we don't want the picture of the old man's son. We want this million dollar art. We're here for a reason. We spent our money to come here for a really important reason. Give us the art. And again, silence, nothing. Till a faint voice in the back of the room, an older gentleman in overall says, I'll take it. I'm the gardener. I'm the guy that took care of the estate. I still do. Take care of the grounds. I knew the boy and I knew how much he meant to his dad. And look, I have no money but I'll take care of the picture. And the auctioneer slams down the gavel and says, sold to the man in the back. Everybody's oh, relieved. Finally, we'll get to start bidding. A few moments later, he slams down the gavel and says, that concludes our auction. Auction over. Everybody gets angry. What are you talking about? We spent millions of, like, we're ready to spend all kinds of money. What are you doing? We want to buy this artwork. He says, the will of the father said, he who takes the son takes it all. I got to think, The same thing is true spiritually. The Beatitudes tell us this. It's not about proving yourself. It's not about having enough money and and having enough prestige and having the perfect record because you can't produce that by yourself. It's about coming before the Father and saying, I've got nothing to offer you. You see, kingdom life is not something you earn. It's not something you purchase. It's not something you deserve. It's simply something that you receive. You just receive it. Just going to accept the son. And as a result, he transforms your life. In the next 12 weeks, we'll look at what does that life look like after you just receive it. You don't earn it. And he begins to change your heart and change your life. Now, as we leave here today, one simple thing. You know, you rack your brain. How can I give you some homework? Your homework? I don't come to church for homework. What do you did today? All right, so here's some homework. And as you leave this place today, what is something that you could do? And look, you can try a hundred different things in a hundred different ways. <clears throat> It's just real simple for me this week. Every single day you wake up, I want you to pray this prayer. Father, I want to invite you into every aspect of my life today because I can't do it alone. Every conversation, every decision that I have to make, every circumstance I find myself in, Father, today, I want to invite you to partner with me because I can't do this by myself. I challenge you to pray that prayer. I'm going to pray it every day. And I wonder what it would look like if an entire church of people said every morning, Father, today, today, this day, right here, right now, not 10 years from now, right here, right now, I want to invite you into every single part of my life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for church. Thank you that when we come to this place, it's not to watch ministry happen on a stage. It's to be refreshed, equipped, refilled for the week as we walk out of this place and live on mission for Jesus. God, may we have our hearts protected from trying to impress other people. May you give every man in this room the courage to stop being fake and to start getting real, to deal with what we have to deal with, to to come before you and just own our mistakes, our brokenness, our poverty, and accept your gift of shaping and molding and transforming our lives. Father, every woman in this room, I pray that you'll give them the courage to pray that prayer to include you in every decision, conversation, 
every circumstance and event they find themselves in this week, may, may we all, Father, invite you into it as we seek to live out this kingdom life. We bring ourselves to you with nothing to offer except gratitude that you accept us anyway. God, thank you for Jesus, who's the only one that can hold the door to the kingdom open. We pray in his name. Amen.